It's good to see the church so well filled. Thanks for great singing. Always thankful for events like yesterday that give us the opportunity to have visitors to our little frozen corner of the earth here. And we're thankful that LaVon Bontrager uh, from Iowa married to Vivian's sister. Mm-hmm. She said to bring us the message this morning. So let's bow to prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for another day you blessed us with. Thank you that we can all gather together, um, some a long ways from home, some close here, and still worship the same God, worship you together. Bless LeVon as he brings the message this morning that our hearts can be drawn together and drawn closer to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Good morning and greetings in Christ's name this morning. As we were back there before Sunday school this morning, I was doing a little bit of reminiscing of when I first came to this community. For those of you locals probably know who I mean. If I say my brother married one of your daughters or one of your one of your sister or one of your girls here a number of years ago, I think it was in 1989 that I first came to Dundee, New York. And uh, I thought it would be probably a one-time event and that would be it. Um, Ken made things kind of go sideways on that plan, so uh, <clears throat> we've been coming back and forth ever since, and uh, yeah, enjoy getting to know you here. Some of you we know better than others, and uh, today I don't know who's a visitor and who's not, but nonetheless, look forward to the next few minutes here. Um, title of the message this morning is, Who Am I Here For, or Who Are You Here For?, and what I want us to think about is what kind of what got this message going for me was a book that I read here in the last month, and uh, kind of the, the message of that book is the idea of serving other people, and that the, the purpose that we have in life, the reason that we're here, the, the why behind what we're doing is much bigger than just what we can accumulate and what our little comfort zone is that we, we operate in and the things that we do to, to pass our time, whether it's our whatever our goals and our ambitions are. I want us to think about serving for the benefit of others. And there's, a, before I get into the text passage, there's a little bit of a, of a story of history I'm going to talk about. Back in the late 60s, some of you would remember when this happened, there was a space shuttle that went to, uh, that went to the moon. And it was the first time that man walked on the moon, and, and there was three men on that mission. Two of them we, we hear about a lot, uh, land, not land. well-known because of the feat they did by walking on the moon. And they came back, and they, they, they did a lot of talks in schools, and they would talk to community groups and events like that, and they were, they were heroes for doing that. The president at the time said that one step on the moon was like a giant leap for mankind or something like that. And so these two men were very popular and become very well-known in American history because they had done something that had never been done before. <clears throat> there was a third man on that mission, too. Does anyone know who he was, what his name was? My oldest son shouldn't say the answer because he heard me say this at Bald Eagle a few weeks ago when I was there with, uh, and did chapel for him, but Michael Collins was the man's name. And Michael Collins was not very well known, but you know what Michael did while the other two were on the moon? He orbited the moon 26 times. And when he came back and picked his two comrades up, everything had to be done for exact, precise precision because it was not an option for him to go back to Earth missing two people. 
Michael trained just like the other two did. His goal in, his, his goal in life was to be that first man on the moon. But you know, Michael's role was not to walk on the moon. His role was simply to be the, the pilot that gets them there, does the things he needs to do, shows up when the time is right, and brings the two heroes back to earth. And then allows these two heroes to become well-known names in American history and get a lot of accolades. Never got a lot of attention. But you know that didn't bother Michael? Someone asked Michael some years later when this all happened, he said, how do you feel about standing on the sidelines and watching all the publicity go to your, your two close friends, knowing that you worked just as hard as they did, you trained just as hard as they did, and when it was all over with, you didn't get the same recognition they did. He said, it didn't bother me. He said, my reason for training was not for the recognition I was getting. He said, there was a mission that I wanted to accomplish, and that was to get a man on the moon. And he saw his role as a pilot as being very valuable at allowing that mission to be fulfilled. And so he never got hung up on the fact that did he get the proper recognition or not. And I think sometimes I find myself a little bit in the same place. I'm willing to be a part of something. This could be something big. It could be something interesting. It could be something that would really, really make a difference. And people would talk about it and they'd really notice this. And this would be great stuff. But maybe when it's all said and done, I was kind of a silent partner in the, in the process. Am I okay with that? Why am I here? What are we here for? We're going to look at Luke chapter 3 this morning for a text passing turn to if you care to. Luke chapter 3, we'll read the first 20 verses. Am I doing something wrong? I think the sound's going in and out, Kendall. Is there something I should have turned on up here? What's that? I did. I'm good if you're good, as long as you can hear me. I just could tell it wasn't coming through quite right, so we'll leave it at that. Luke chapter 3, starting at verse 1. We'll read the first 20 verses. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea, of the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias, the tetrarch of Abilene. Annas and Caiaphas, being the high priests, the word of God, came unto John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he came unto all the country about Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be brought low. And the crooked shall be made straight, and the, and the rough ways shall be made smooth. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Then said he to the multitude that came forth to be baptized in him, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth, therefore, fruits worthy of repentance, and begin not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you, for I say unto you that God is able to these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid.
And now, verse 9, And now also the axe is laid into the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. And the people ask him, saying, What shall we do then? He answereth and saith unto them, He that hath two coats, let him impart to him that hath none. And he that hath meat, let him do likewise. Then came also publicans to be baptized, and said unto him, Master, what shall we do? He said unto them, Exact no more than that which is appointed to you. And the soldiers likewise demanded of him, saying, And what shall we do? And he said unto them, Do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages. And as the people were in expectation, all the men mused in their hearts of John, whether he were the Christ or not. John answered, saying unto them all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I cometh, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor, and will gather the wheat into his garner, but the chaff he will burn with fire unquenchable. And many other things in his exhortation preached ye unto the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, being reproved by him, by him for, his, for Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and all the evils which Herod hath done, added yet this above all, that he shut John up in prison. You know, this story comes on the heels of Luke 2, which was also a story about a man that made quite an impact in history, the story of the birth of Jesus. So while these two men were very closely connected in their time for, in the time frame, we often, John is known as a forerunner of Christ. You know, the story of John is, is, is significant, and there's, there's not a lot in Scripture about him, but basically the little, the little blip on history that we have of John was needful to be there to kind of get the process started for the ministry of Jesus. And John had many people asking him, are you the Christ, or who are you? John would have had the ability, I think, to create a following, and he could have said, you know, we're going to have the, maybe the first church of the Johnites or something like that. John could have done something to, to gather a little bit of this stuff after him, knowing that at some point he'll be out of the way, and then Jesus can have his ministry. But John didn't do that. He knew his purpose, and he knew, why, he knew who he was there for and why he was there. While they were closely connected, their ministry was vastly different. Some of the amazing things that Christ did were reserved for Jesus. But John prepped the people to get ready for someone that was coming that was much greater than he was. Who are you and I pointing people to? Do my actions cause people to look at me and see what I can accomplish, what marvelous things I've done, what things I've been involved in, or what things you have been doing, what you've been able to create or build, maybe it's business, whatever it might be. It's not necessarily something that is it's a right or wrong issue. We all strive for success, and we should. God's given us abilities. We know the parable of talents. Some of us have abilities that others don't have, and some of us wish we had some that we don't have. The bottom line is do the best what you have. But remember, what we've been given is not just for us. And John knew that as well as anyone did. Do my actions cause people to look at me, or do they see a bigger picture than me? John was aware. His parents were very aware. He had a unique calling. If you just read the story about how things were before he was actually born, while he was in his mother's womb, his father, once he could talk, he could tell you it was not a normal birth story or a normal pregnancy. It was unique, very unique to John the Baptist. Verse 4. 
talks about there was a, a prophecy that was fulfilled about preparing the way of the Lord. And Isaiah talked about that, and John was just reminding people that's what he was here for. Verses 7 through 9, he, he calls the people something that I wouldn't probably be real comfortable getting up and calling somebody a, a bunch of snakes or a brood of vipers. It's not a real a politically correct term in our day, and I'm not suggesting we use that on people. But I wouldn't call John a real polished man. But nonetheless, John knew his mission. He knew why he was here. And he was here to serve for the benefit of someone greater than him. John wasn't interested in preaching a soft message or preaching a tickling ears. We would probably say today that John was kind of weird. He was a bit of a social misfit. Anyone who lived in the desert wore funny clothes, ate grasshoppers and wild honey. He was kind of a league of his own. He wasn't real normal. There wasn't a lot of people like him. And yet people were extremely interested in what he had to say. And they followed him, or they followed his teachings, and they wanted to know what John thought about things, and they would ask him a lot of questions that were in a roundabout way just kind of pointing people forward to the coming of Jesus. I find it interesting that someone like Jesus who had such a tremendous following and had so much awareness of his ministry didn't have someone a bit more polished than John as his forerunner. If we look at the ministry of Jesus, it was that way. It was often unusual and not exactly, it didn't really fit what we would call a well-written script. In verses 10 to 14, he teaches some very basic principles that I think are relevant to us today. He tells them to share, be fair with each other, not to be told the soldiers not to be mean and cruel, the tax collectors to get what they what they should, but not to overcharge, not to take advantage of people. Just some real basic principles. A lot of these are laid out in the in the Ten Commandments. And a lot of these principles they taught are principles that were so basic that you teach your young children today. You're your child's be very old till you teach them they need to share. I hear children or hear families sometimes with an only child say we wish they had siblings, so someone someone that they could fight with and learn to share with. <laughs> Those of us that had siblings still didn't always learn it very well. But so there were some basic principles what John taught that were not rocket science. A lot of them were were just some principles that the people had heard before. But he was reminding them again of the importance of serving for the benefit of other people, not creating our own. It's not about us creating our own following and using our charisma to create something that's about us. Another thing that John taught, as I was studying this, I came across the, the word integrity kept coming back, and there are several meanings for the word integrity. And one of the things I want us to think about is, is in, and we heard about it some this morning already, character versus reputation. We all want a good reputation, and we should want a good reputation. But I thought Mark said it well when he said, however he said it, but my reputation is important, but it's not nearly as important as my character is. Let's remember that. Integrity in the ordinary things is still a mark of true repentance. We may sometimes think God requires us to do great or impossible things to demonstrate repentance, but often he's simply looking for us to, do, to use integrity in the ordinary things of life. When people aren't really watching, there's not really a fan club that's watching on a stage to see what you're going to do in a certain situation. 
But your second, or our second nature is just do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. He tells them, as I said, to collect no more than what's appointed. Do not intimidate people or falsely accuse. Be content with your wages. John didn't tell them that if you're a tax collector, stop. The tax collectors have a bad reputation. They, they are known to take advantage of people. Do not be a tax collector anymore. No, he said, you can be a tax collector, but be fair. Why did they have a bad reputation? Because they took advantage of people. They utilized their position, their power, to take advantage of others. He said, that's wrong. What they were, their job wasn't wrong, but the way their culture was using that job was wrong. In verses 15 to 18, people were asking some legitimate questions about who John was. They were reasoning whether or not he was the Christ, and he made such an impact on people that they had a right to ask that. You know, he used that famous saying, the, the sandal strap that he's not worthy to loosen. There's someone coming after him that is so much greater than him. And the rabbis in Jesus' day taught that a teacher could require just about anything from those he was teaching except to have them take off their sandals. And John simply told them, there's a man coming that I'm not even worthy to remove his sandals. He was so focused on who he was pointing the people to instead of glory for himself. John had many reasons to be proud, yet he was a very humble man. A miraculous birth, a prophesied destiny, a lot of prophetic promises, a powerful preacher, and a man with the following, as I said earlier. You know, in our culture, we often have jobs and social structures that are very closely connected to what we deem as levels of importance and significance. If you work in a job that's got a lot of employees, or in a company that has a lot of employees, and you're there very long, there will probably come a time where you'll be offered a position that would be considered a higher level of position than what you started. And that's, that's okay, that's right. But that's, that is so ingrained in our culture, we often, we begin to look at ourselves, I think, in our churches sometimes, at, at who stacks where. And certain people, their word means more than someone else's does, and, and I... I don't know how to get away from that. I think every culture struggles with that to a point. When we lived in Haiti years ago, the village we lived in there at the end was primarily made up of three families. And as I learned the, the history of some of that, two of the families didn't really care for each other because the one family that had always been kind of the down and the outs were always the poor ones and the others were the more educated ones and had they owned more land. They were just worth a lot more money. But the poorer family, with time, had some opportunities, some connections to go overseas, get educations, make some money, and they began to feed the poor family some financial resources back in the village. It didn't go over well, because the prominent name had been a prominent name for decades, and it was known that that's who controlled what happens in that village. And it was done because they simply were worth more when it comes to financial and, and, and a societal level. And that flipped in probably the 80s and the 90s. And it helped me understand some of the pushback and some of the things that were going on in that village because 
I came on the scene and the family that was more prominent had just kind of gotten there. 20 years before, they were, and there were still some older people that said, shouldn't be that way. We were the ones that had the, had the control. So we as a people, I think we struggle with that sometimes, and I don't, I don't know what to do about it. But as I look at the life of John the Baptist, I'm just reminded of a man that had so much humility, he was just bent on spending his life serving for the benefit of others, not to create his own following. Such a man of humility that we can learn so much from. What if I took the approach of John in, in my life? As I mentioned earlier, integrity has several meanings. And there's one that I came across I want us to think about. It's called an internal consistency. We think of integrity as someone that does, that has a, an opportunity to maybe do something that nobody knows about and they make the right decision. We can all think of things that we've had opportunity in life where we could have done something and no one would have found out, at least no one that we knew about. And likely we could have hid it for the rest of our life. It might have been a financial advantage for us, we would have done it that way. It might have, there's just a whole host of reasons why we could have maybe reasoned a justification for doing what might have been a little bit of a shady deal and nobody would have known it. But why don't we do those things? Because there's an internal consistency known as integrity. We do the right thing. It's just kind of a second nature. We're faced with a quick decision. Do we or don't we? And most of us, we grew up in a godly environment. Get taught at a young age that we don't do the right thing just because we'll get caught potentially for doing the wrong thing. No, we do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. There's an internal intuition that causes us to be consistent. It should. We're human. I would guess if I opened up for some stories or testimonies here for people that have made wrong decisions, that later they look back and they said from an integrity standpoint, that was the wrong thing to do. We've all learned some, some lessons the hard way. I'm sure we have. I have. But when, it, when we as Christians truly live with integrity, there is that internal consistency that it doesn't matter if the money is flashed in front of us, if the potential for maybe a positional raise in the company, you name it. We resort back to the fact that this is what the right thing is to do. That's the kind of, in, that's the kind of integrity that John had when he was, I'm sure, tempted at times to look about the following and the position that he could create because he was being compared to someone as great as Jesus Christ who is to come yet. We can also think of people that are swayed or have been swayed. We can look at it in, our, in, our, in government, in politics. That's a real quick place we can look at as I study or as I read sometimes on, on men in history, uh, presidents. I, I enjoy reading up some of those sometimes. I find out of things that happened hundreds of years ago that kind of got slid under the carpet at the time, and later it got found out. They didn't have that internal consistency of integrity that they should have had. We also hear sometimes that we need to know the why behind we do what we do. There's, there's a book that, I, that, I, that I've quoted before by Simon Sinek. says, know your why. And there's a lot of value to knowing your why, why you do the things that you do. But I want us to consider, who are you here for? Those of us that have that have families that are married and have children, we go to work or we get up mornings and there's a job to go to. And whether you want to go to work or not, you've got bills to pay, you've got family to feed, you've got people you're responsible for that are going to 
bring you to reality pretty quick as to who you're here for. We witnessed a wedding yesterday. Darrell and Vanessa will both experience some times when they won't feel like doing what needs to be done in the next years. We recently had a small baby born in our congregation, and I, I remember thinking about, it's a, it was the first child for that family, I remember thinking about as they were at church their first Sunday, and people were ooing and aahing with this baby. I made the comment to him, I said, you know, I said, it's pretty neat, you have something new and exciting, everybody likes that. I said, nobody's coming up to you and saying, congrats, but by the way, terrible twos, adolescent years, teenagers, that's all what this little boy is going to represent, so just hang on for the ride, because it's neat and, and, and fun now, but there'll be sleepless nights, and, and the rest will come later. We don't do that. That's the reality, though. But you know, we don't parent just for ourselves. We do it for our children, because we have a goal in mind where we can raise those children to make a difference in the kingdom. They can take the things that we've learned from our parents, and they can go so much further than we can go, and that's why we do those things. That's why we work hard. That's why we make the sacrifices we make. We're not just here for ourselves, but we're here for someone else. And ultimately, we're here for God. But in a materialistic level, day to day, a lot of the things that we do as Christians are not just about us. And the sooner we're okay with that, probably the easier we'll figure out what we are here for. If this mindset helps me, hum this mindset will help us humbly focus on others so we can serve and our mission and our purpose becomes much more important than what we want. When life is about what I want, I will quickly get it and then I move the marker. It's a bit of like a football game. Once the first down is gotten, they quickly move the chains for another first down. They don't just say, wow, we got a first down. Let's go to the locker room now, we're all done. No, that's not how that game works. You keep you keep moving, same way here in life. We set metrics that we want to achieve, things that we're trying to do, and when we get that, we quickly want something else. I want to caution us that we don't miss a feeling of gratitude when we're constantly looking for the next big thing. Sometimes it's good for us to realize, that, you know what, we've been blessed. Let's enjoy the moment a little. And that's part of living for the benefit of others, serving others, not always be looking for the next, the next great thing, but enjoy the moment that you're in. There's a, another story that I'm going to talk about just a little bit. Some of you have probably heard the story of, uh, or the book Love Does by Bob Goff. I didn't know much about Bob Goff until recently. I learned a little more about him, and uh, he was a successful lawyer for over 25 years in the Seattle, Washington area, and he's, he worked with a lot of clients that we're in the commercial building industry where there was malfunction in engineering and design and some of these skyscrapers and high-rise that were built. You know, when a, when a, what's potentially be a skyscraper, while they're building, begins to lean, there's a problem, and usually someone has to figure out who's responsible for that problem. And so he was involved in working with companies and got involved in a lot of lawsuits. Not really what I would want to be involved in, but that's what Bob did professing Christian, a very successful lawyer. In 25 years, he never lost a case. And he simply says, I found myself in the middle of many cases where there was companies with extreme wealth 
throwing millions of dollars to get the responsibility of what went wrong off their back. And he said, we sat there, just kind of collected the money and settled the case and moved on. He said, it was kind of a nice place to be financially. So Bob was very wealthy and very successful. Some years ago, he went on a trip to India, and on that trip to India, he saw his, his little girl back home. He saw little girls about the age of his little girl back home that were being sold into sex slavery and sex trafficking. And you know, Bob said, I, had, I, I came to grips with the decision that I had to make. Do I want to look at what's going wrong with this picture and do something? Or do I kind of wring my hands, shrug my shoulders, say it's sad, buy a few souvenirs, and go back to Seattle, Washington and keep making money? Bob decided to do something. He didn't make a big issue out of it. He didn't even tell people for a long time what he was doing. But he began the organization known as Love Does. And for over a decade, while he was, when he was at home, he was winning these massive cases in Seattle. He was funneling millions of dollars to some of the things that Love Does as an organization was doing overseas. He was quietly using money to build schools and safe houses for underprivileged children. He traveled in some very dangerous areas more than once. His law practice quickly turned into a fundraising venture that raised millions of dollars for his mission overseas. He had people advise him, say he should expand his law firm. He should hit some other big cities all across the U.S. and take this from the Pacific Northwest to the Southeast, to the Southwest, and even out to the Northeast. But Bob said, I'm losing my, I'm losing my focus, my desire to do what I'm doing. After he was overseas one time for most of a year, he came back, and when he went up the elevator and got out on the floor of the, I think it was whatever the floor was that his practice, his law practice was, he got to the reception, she looked at him, and she said, and who are you that I need to know before I can let you enter? He said, my name is on the wall behind you. I'm, I'm, I'm Bob Goff, the owner of the practice. She had no idea who he was because he'd been gone so long. Bob said it was at that point he realized he needs to step away from what he's doing because he is completely losing focus and something that was bigger than him was taking, bigger than what he was involved in in the States was taking his, his time and his energy. They have now expanded into seven countries and likely will keep growing. I simply share that story just as a reminder to us that what can happen when we continue to focus on something that is bigger than just ourselves and our own life no, we're not all worth millions like Bob was and could do what Bob did. But it might be something that's so small, we would call small, that fits you in your community. Maybe there's something that you just have a burden for and God's kind of laid on your heart and that you can, you can be a, a part of. Maybe it's something in your own church. Maybe there's, you know, we have some people in our church that encourage us, send us ministers text messages, and a lot of the church has no idea. They're not the most polished people. You'd say, well, they're probably not ones that are, yeah, they probably don't think about others too much. Oh, they do. Their way might be different than your way. There's not one single way that you're called to serve. But when our focus is, is on a mission that is bigger than just ourselves, serving ourselves and making ourselves comfortable or famous, it's amazing what God can do. Who I show up for 
has nothing to do with my position or visibility. It's not based on culture or the American dream. It is important for me to have the mind that John the Baptist and some others had in their ministry. They used their position to have great impact, to have the greatest impact possible, and it simply didn't matter if they got the public eye or not. They had an inner consistency called integrity that caused them to do the right thing, whether anyone, anyone was watching or not. They weren't searching for the next promotion or the next big thing. They simply embraced and thrived in the roles that God gave them to fulfill. They truly experienced what service is like when you serve for the benefit of others. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your goodness and your love to us. We thank you for the, the example we have in Scripture with John the Baptist, the life he was willing to live to be that forerunner for Christ. Many of us have a calling in our life as well to make a difference and point others to Jesus. Just give us a vision and, and, and just an understanding of how we can do that in any small way. We can look at big ways. Help us be willing to look at the small ways, things that are actually bites that we can chew off and digest. Help us to be, be practical and have an inner integrity, an inner consistency that rules the decisions we make and who we are and how we do life, regardless who's watching. Pray a special blessing on this church. I just pray you bless them as they impact and interact with the community around here. Just give them wisdom and direction and bless each one of them. We ask this all in your name. Amen.